The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing today? Right on. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. Wave it around like you don't care at all. And uh, a gentleman with a Bible will get to you. And while you're turning there, I have a few announcements for you. Are we still missing some lights, maybe? Possibly? Seems like it. Thank you. Um, So, today is the end of the Joys and Toys program. Um, The last day, if you didn't bring the stocking or the gift that you got for the outreach program we're doing this Christmas, if you didn't bring that today, we definitely, definitely, definitely need it by next Sunday. So you can either find out if we're, you know, come by during office hours and drop it off over at the hub or bring it with you next week. But we definitely need that by then. And we still can uh, receive cash donations towards that or cash or check, whatever, towards that up until December 11th as well. So uh, if you need more information, just stop by and talk with the gals on your way out. Also, uh, next Sunday is the ladies' Christmas gathering and celebration. That will be December 11th at 6 o'clock. It's next door at the hub where our office is. We've got a little mini sanctuary over there if you've never been. Um, uh, no child care is provided, but it is for um, ladies of all ages. So guys, stay home. Maybe the Sunday night game's good that week. But ladies, go fellowship and gather. And uh, in that gathering, they'll be doing some stuff to bless the pregnancy center and the on-track moms here in the valley. So a really cool opportunity to not just gather and enjoy some fellowship, but to bless people in the community um, in the name of the gospel. Also, we still need all sorts of volunteers, just so you guys know. When we went to two services, it it did, to some degree, double the amount of help that we needed. And and I've heard by so many people before, people say, well, it looks like you guys have everything covered. That's because we scramble frantically before you guys ever get here. Um, Things like, for example, this chandelier right here was part of all sorts of decorations that Cascade put out this week. I assure you, we did not put that chandelier up. We will make sure that that chandelier is gone as soon as we can. But... um, there's in given weeks because it's a shared facility we come in and who knows what we're running into and the setup and all those things we we just need a lot of help in that area um and one area in particular i want to throw your way um if you are here and your child or you are benefiting you're a part of you're blessed by whatever the case may be the awana program on wednesday night may i hear a hearty amen there's like five of you i think let's try that one more time awana program you're blessed by it Amen. Okay, so it takes an immense amount of work to put that together. It really does. And Pastor Brent, our, um, who, who's in charge of the children's ministry and family ministry here at Heritage, um, he puts in an insane amount of work to put that together. And not long ago, we discovered, uh, we were here having an elders meeting one night, and it was going till the wee hours. Um, well, wee hours for me. I'm getting old. That's 10 o'clock. So 10 o'clock at night. And we heard a door open downstairs over at the hub, and it was Brent. And what we discovered is pretty much every single Wednesday night, Brent is here all by himself, putting everything away at the end of the night until 10 and even later at night, every Wednesday night. And if you are blessed by, not even just the Awana program, uh, if you've been around very long at all, you know what a valuable member to our team Pastor Brent is. Amen? The things he has brought to the children's ministry and everything here. So here's the deal. When you have a family member that you're that blessed by, you kind of want to keep them around for a while. So we would really like uh, to see if we could get some people to just help out once in a while so that we don't burn this guy out. So, um, and, and that's a sincere, we are a family. We want to take care of our family members. And I'm asking you as the pastor, but on behalf of Pastor Brent, he needs your help. So if any of you can help with that, please um, shoot Brent an email even right now over your phone, brent at heritagefellowship.net, let him know, or stop by the Connect Desk on the way out. But we could really use some help there and in several other areas as well, including stage, sound, lights, all kinds of stuff. So, but, and, and volunteering here, that's how you're going to get to know people. There's a, there's a phrase, brotherhood is born in the trenches. Some of you have heard that before. And I'm telling you, the best friends you'll ever make are the people that you're serving side by side with. So I encourage you, if you're not serving somewhere, please, please get involved. One final, I, I have one final announcement before I get to this. Also, I, I got asked this morning several times. It wasn't on my announcement list, but I'm going to go ahead and do it now. People are asking, what's the holiday plan for Heritage? Um, Christmas this year is on a Sunday. What are you going to do? Um, we are going to move the Sunday service on Christmas Day to Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock. It's a Saturday, so we don't have to do it quite so early because of work schedules. We're going to do it on Friday at five o- or Saturday at 5 o'clock. 
I do understand for some of you, you're like, but it's Christmas day and it's Sunday. Why would you move such a thing? And just so you know, our original plan was to do a Christmas day service. We're like, it's Sunday. We teach that, man, we don't put Jesus on the back burner for anything. Why would we do that even for family as great as that is? Let's do it. Problem is it's a shared facility. There's a big basketball tournament that week that will get played here. So if we do a Sunday service, that means I have to have all the staff, all the volunteers, leadership, sound crew, all those people here working all day on, on Saturday the 24th, setting up so that we can do a Sunday service without them having to show up on Christmas Day at 4 a.m. And to do that means now for both of those sets of people, they don't have any one day, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, alone with their families where they just can be with their family. And I'm not okay with that. So um, what we're going to do is we're just going to move that service to Christmas Eve. We will gather together as a family. Um, if you uh, enjoy the tradition of gathering with um, the body of Christ, I, I know there's some other churches. I'd be happy to make some recommendations for you that are doing that. Um, but one of the things, too, that I'm going to do is I'm going to put together actually a little devotional that we're going to give out to you on the Christmas Eve service, um, or maybe actually even just the week before. What I think would be even better is if you, and let me talk to you men that are heads of families, those of you with families in particular, I'm talking to you, but it can apply to everyone, okay? I know people without families get felt left out sometimes, and I, I apologize for that. It's not my heart, but wouldn't it be awesome if your church service on Christmas Day was with Pastor Dad leading the family around the tree as they talk about that there? That's church too, right? So we're going to actually supply you dads with something that you can do with your family on Christmas day as you guys get up with the kids and all that kind of stuff. Sound good? Amen. So we'll take care of that. So Christmas service will be on December 24th at five o'clock. Last thing, um, last week I gave this book away and it was like, you guys were like rushing the stage. It was like insane watching you guys come forward and grab this. And, and I've had people, hey, what was the name of that book? I really want to get that book. So it apparently resonated, right? Um, this is called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. And again, this season, especially, we get so big. This has been like the longest week ever for me. Um, and today, it'll go into tonight for me. And so there, it's, it's so easy to get so busy. Man, if there was ever a Christian book you'd want to read, it should be this one. Because it's going to tell you that rest is important. And we like hearing that, right? So much Christian writing is actually telling you all these other things you need to do. You know what I mean? Well, the idea in this book, and he's funny and witty and deep. But the understanding that rest is part of the actual rhythms of God. And it's part of his plan for God's people. So uh, this is a, two free copies. Remember, if you get this, you are pledging as you touch it, that you will read it, that it will not collect dust on your shelf. And second of all, that when you are done reading it, you will give it away. You can just bring it up and lay it on the stage if you want. Somebody else can grab it, give it to a friend. I don't care, but it never collects dust. It just keeps going round and round and round. Amen? So I'll just set them up here and you guys can come get it. Last service, people were like waving for it and there it goes already. So, and gone. <laughs> so there we go. Do me a favor if you would. Colossians chapter one, will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read verses 15 through 20? Colossians one, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for an opportunity, Lord, to lift our heads up and set our gaze upon the one who is preeminent over all things. God, our desire here is not that we bring you down to a place of understanding, but that we might see you for who you are. That we might see your grandness, your power, your rule, your authority, your majesty. But also experience the wonder of your grace, your patience, your mercy, and your love. 
So Father, may we not lord over this text, but may we bow in posture of heart before the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We mentioned last week that the Advent season began last week. Advent is kind of a high church way um, uh, or practice where the four or five weeks before Christmas are set aside to just really focus on and think about not only the first coming of Jesus Christ, looking back and celebrating the birth and remembering that Christ came for us, but also looking ahead and anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. And so we have done this many times. Other churches are doing this as well, where you you kind of break out of what you're normally going through and let's do an Advent series for a while so we get to really focus. Um, But this particular text that we're in right now in the book of Colossians is probably the most Christologically important passage in all of the New Testament. And so what better place to actually spend Advent season than maybe the most important text anywhere that describes to us and teaches us who Jesus is, why he came, how amazing he is, his majesty, his grandeur. So we're doing it. We'll continue to think about it. We got trees behind us. I mean, how can you miss that it's Christmas season, right? But we're going to look at it this Advent season through the lens of Colossians as we continue through this text. And I'm going to warn you in advance. um, Today, this is more teaching less sermon, if that makes sense. Um, maybe it's, I was in school all day Friday up at Western Seminary, so maybe I'm just in that mode, and uh, finals are this week, all that kind of stuff, but, but this is going to be a little more um, um, almost lecture-ish in some ways, and less sermon, because I, I want to take a, we're going we're gonna to dissect this text, and then we're going to take a step back, and we're going to look at the big picture view of what's really going on in here. And so I'm going to be dragging you guys all over the place, but we've got slides for this. Um, pray for Jesse. I think Jesse did really good in the first service. He tracked right along. We got like, he's, he's buried in slides to have to tr- keep up with me today. So pray for Jesse that he tracks that along. But um, I want you to really strive and try to lean in in this text and really see the reality, the big picture of what's going on. And and I can say this with confidence because this is what Paul really wants us to do here. And and it's really easy to tell because here's the thing. As you're reading through Colossians chapter one, all the text in our Bibles kind of looks the same, doesn't it? I mean, maybe there's a new paragraph at chapter 15 or verse 15, I'm sorry, some of yours might have. Mine, there's a little paragraph break and then they give the little header to tell you what you're about to read about. Some of yours has that. Mine says the preeminence of Christ, and then verse 15 starts. But as far as the text goes and everything in here, it's kind of the same. It all looks the same, right? But that's not actually representative of what's really going on in the text. And I'm I'm sometimes hesitant to say this because I don't want you guys to feel that you can't just open the Bible, read it, and not understand what's going on. The Bible is completely sufficient just to be opened and read to learn who Jesus Christ is. Amen? You do not need a seminary degree to understand the scriptures. But we have been blessed with all sorts of resources to understand things on a, on a significant level. It would be, um, I believe, a, a waste or poor stewardship to not want to study to the best degree that we can. And when scholars, not me, scholars, um, really started to dig into this, they started noticing. In Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15 and going through verse 20, there's actually rhythms to it. It's actually written in such a way that there's almost a rhythm a pattern, and a balance in it. And so because of that, it is strongly believed by many historians and theologians that Paul's going along, he's reading this letter, he's, he's like, hey, I'm praying for you guys, Colossian church, man, I want you guys to grow in the gospel. And he goes into verse eight, making known to us your love in the spirit. He's talking about how they got saved, how the gospel got there. And he's really pressing, he goes into verse 11, 12, 13, 14. This idea of the gospel that saved them, what Jesus has done. And then when verse 15 starts, it's a song. We would call it maybe a hymn or a poem. It's something written in a format with boundaries and with timing and with balance in it. Now, why is that important to understand? Why does that help us maybe to understand Paul's intent here? Because if someone was just writing you a letter and you're just kind of reading right along and all of a sudden they got to a poem, there's a different intent all of a sudden that kicks in. I mean, like the average letter, if you're writing your wife, your boyfriend, whoever the case may be, and you're just writing all these things, yeah, they're reading, they're reading, but if you throw a poem in there, you just kicked it up a notch, right? 
Like you did. When, when you insert a poem, or, or some of you, you mushy lovers, have written, have written a, a letter to your loved one, and you get to a certain point, and then you insert the lyrics to your favorite song. You're like, Justin Bieber said it best when he said this. <laughs> you know, something like that. Why do you do that? Because in that moment, when you insert that part into the story, so to speak, it's intended to grab their heart. It's intended to cause them to lean in a little bit more. It's intended to invoke emotion in a way that maybe other parts of the letter aren't quite as purposeful in. And so Paul's going along and he's doing this and he comes to this text and he inserts this hymn, this poem into the text for us to understand. Now I'm going to go ahead now before we even dig into it, I'm going to tell you why he's doing this. You guys remember this church, it's a real church, real in history with a real time and they're facing real threats. There's false teachers coming around trying to get them to buy into all these different things, whether it's paganistic religions like the Gnostics or whether it's the Judaizers that are trying to say, yeah, you've got Jesus, but you need other things too. There's all these false teachings coming in. And Paul is inserting this in there because he wants to capture their imagination. He wants to capture their emotion and he wants to capture their minds and fill all of it with wonder of who Jesus is. And the reason is because if they get this, like if they really see who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, then they will not at all be tempted to go back to the garbage that's coming at them anymore. Remember last week we talked about it, that that in the gospel, Jesus has saved us, he's removed us from the domain of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And remember, we talked about the fact that still so often, though we've been saved and moved and relocated, we have this tendency to keep wanting to go back to that old neighborhood all the time. And so Paul is trying to invoke not just knowledge, but emotion, understanding, all of these things. He's trying to capture us with the understanding of what we really have in Jesus and who he really is, so that when those lies and those temptations come, they will pale in comparison to the grandeur of Jesus Christ. It's like our hymn says, the hymn that we all know, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then what? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. That could have been written as a translation for our modern minds of what Colossians 1 verse 15 through 20 is. The majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ and the grace that he's poured out on others. And Paul wants us to lean in. He wants it to capture our heart, our spirit, our understanding, so that as we think on these things, the temptations that come our way, they're just, they're just not attractive anymore. I mean, that, we have to admit it, right? Temptations are tempting because well, they're, they're tempting. You know that, right? Like when sin tempts us, it's trying to draw us to something that would be appealing to us. And the best way to combat something that's coming towards you, that's trying to woo you to itself, is to distract, be distracted by, or turn your focus to something that's even better. Like if you don't have a car, I could tempt you with like a Yugo. Do you guys even know what Yugos are anymore? What's the modern equivalent of Yugo? Bicycle. If you have a, don't have a car and you need a bicycle, like I I don't have a vehicle, I don't know how I'm going to get around town, I need some transportation, here's a bicycle. Ooh, I'm drawn towards that bicycle. That would be a whole lot better than walking and my feet get tired and all these kind of things. And then a Ferrari pulls up and someone's got the keys. Or you could have this. This is what Paul's doing. He is elevating the glory of Jesus Christ and showing you that why would you buy into these paganistic religions because he's the Lord of Lords. And why would you go back to this legalistic way of living where you're gonna try to earn and control your own life when he's the king of kings? And he's good and he loves you. So that's the purpose of this text. So we are only going to look at two verses today, verse 15 and 16. But let's dive right in. And then I'm going to take you guys all over the place. But you guys are smart. Amen. And we can track with this every once in a while. We can handle some chewy meat. Amen. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to dig into this. And then I want to challenge you guys to, to dwell on this stuff this week. To think about this stuff. To really grasp what's going on in this text. Because it's amazing. All right? And then, honestly, to be quite honest with you, um, I'm sort of a biblical theology nerd. And what I mean by that, biblical theology is when you want to step back and see the themes that run all through the Bible and how, how certain themes and certain subjects trace through the whole story of Scripture. 
I'm sort of a nerd that way. Go ahead and say it. Call me a nerd now. Nerd. I'm totally a nerd. But, but here's what happens. To me, it makes the Bible just come alive. When I see how these things weave through all of history, through books that were written thousands of years apart, and I see these things, and then when you carry them on in that trajectory, in even to our lives today, to me, it just makes everything so real and so alive, and I get excited. So even if it doesn't, humor me, call me a nerd again. Every nerd has his day, though. Today's mine. So Colossians 1 verse 15 is where we are, and it starts off and says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this verse tells us two things about Jesus that are unmistakable in this text. It tells us first how Christ relates to God the Father, and then it tells us how Christ relates to all of creation. And these are significant, and we're going to pull them back together here towards the end. So think with me for a minute. With relation to God the Father... What is the relationship like between Jesus Christ? Even as he walked the earth, what is the relationship like or what was the relationship like with Jesus Christ and God the Father? Well, the text here tells us he is the image of the invisible God. The image here is likeness. You guys remember the story when the question of paying taxes came before Jesus and they said, so what do we do? Should we pay our taxes to Caesar? What do we do? And remember Jesus said to them, show me a coin. And they brought our coin And he said, whose likeness, whose image is on this coin? Well, on that coin, there was a stamped pattern that was the image of Caesar on that coin. So that when someone looks at that, his image on that coin instantly would bring to mind, that's a picture of Caesar. Your mind would go there because it looks like him. Now, the Bible tells us that no one has seen God. And Jesus elaborates and actually kind of messes that up just a little bit because in John 4, 6, Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And who is he who is from God? Jesus. So Jesus has seen the Father. But other than Jesus, no other human, no other person in the history of mankind walking this earth has seen God the Father can say this is and has experienced this. That both the Old Testament and the New Testament both... um, reiterate this. But Jesus said something really interesting kind of to that degree though. Um, When he was speaking to Philip, one of his disciples, he said this, and we have the text for it, I believe. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Jesus does not mean that he and the Father are lookalikes in in appearance, let's say. The Bible makes it really clear that God is spirit. So if God the Father presented himself here, if his presence became manifest visibly to us in this moment, as did the resurrected Jesus Christ, we would not say that they visibly are the same, in the same way that you would say two twins look like one another in terms of appearance. But look how there's a verse in Hebrews that's very Colossians-like. Now think about it. In Colossians, we're talking about he, has, he holds all things together, his preeminence, his power. And look what Hebrews actually says. Hebrews 1.3 says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Very Colossians-like. Now think about what it says here about Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. An imprint, you can think, just like the the coins. They would stamp these coins to have the image of Caesar on him. He says, he is the exact imprint of what? His nature. So when we're talking about likeness in this particular way, we're talking about the fact that we may not be able to see God, No one may have been able to physically see the quote-unquote hand of God doing things, but we look to Jesus and we know what God is as we see Jesus because he is the imprint, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the radiance of his glory. He radiates, he, he shines forth the glory of God. And as he said to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And this is beautiful. This is good to remember because we have this mindset sometimes that God is the one of the Old Testament who's grumpy and kills lots of people when they get out of, my, out of line. But then praise God in the New Testament, Jesus came along, he's much more chill and everything goes way better for us after that. Now we wouldn't probably say that, but maybe in our minds we picture that. 
Maybe in our minds we would think that. I mean, may, maybe you have some sort of immorality in your past, whether it's past as in before you walked into church today or whether it's past 10 years ago. There's probably something in your life that if it was displayed before the church people, you would feel shame. You would feel embarrassment, guilt, condemnation, whatever the case may be. So when you think about that thing, in your mind, where does your mind instantly go to if you thought, how does God look at you in that moment? Like when it happened, 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago, whatever it is, when you look back in your mind to that day, how do you think God looks at you? Well, for some people, I, I refer to it as kind of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial God. And this is what I mean by that. How many of you have ever been to the Abraham Lincoln Memorial? Anyone? There's a few of you. So you go there. It's a powerful place. The history, the, um, the, the, the end of slavery, the things that happen there are powerful and they're amazing. But I'll be honest with you, the, the statue of Abraham Lincoln is really cold. Like you, you go up these steps and there's these white columns and it's this incredible, I think it's the best building in all of Washington, D.C. But you go in there and there's this throne, this giant chair. And here's Abraham Lincoln sitting there on this throne and he's got this kind of stern, serious look all the time. And I get it. It'd be weird if you did a whole monument. He's like, like that'd be silly, right? So I, I, I understand it. I understand it. But if you study Abraham Lincoln and you understand his heart for the nation, his heart for people, his heart for the slaves, his heart for all those things, he's a very loving guy. But if you didn't know any of that history and all you knew is you looked at that statue and said, what is Abraham Lincoln like? You'd say, man, he looks grumpy. And so for some of us, that's how we picture God. I think God looks down at us with this scowl. He's frustrated with us. He's sick of dealing with us. Or maybe he loves us, but he sees all these things we keep doing. And he, like any dad, because we're used to dads that don't exactly hug when we mess up. So he's just looking down at us with this scowl the whole time. Well, the Bible actually says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So if we look to Jesus in a situation where he was brought face to face with someone dealing with an immorality in that moment, we get an insight into how God looks at us, don't we? So think about the woman at the well who had a terrible history of inappropriate relationships and sin. And what did Jesus do? Now, he, he pointed out her sin, but not to, not to shame her, not to destroy her. I mean, she's coming to the well in the middle of the day because she experiences shame because of her history. She's thinking she'll be all by herself when she gets there. But as we know, you, the psalmist even writes, you can't run from God. And there's Jesus there at the well and she comes. He points those things out. But what's his posture towards her? He's like, hey, I'm the one you've been looking for. And even when she tries to distract with religious language, wow, I, I know some spiritual things. Where do you think we should worship? He says, no, 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 listen, listen, listen. I'm the one you've been looking for. He loves her. He wants to save her. The woman caught in adultery, drugged before Jesus, probably naked in that very moment, he honors and saves and says, you are forgiven to her. That's beautiful, Amen. That's so helpful just to remember. When we get tempted to think that God's different then than he is now, God is unchanging. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. God loves you. Jesus loves you is normal for us because we sing it from a kid, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. But listen, God delights in you. He loves you. He cares for you. But let's take it a different way then, just for fun. Maybe you come to church for ulterior motives. Maybe you come to church, not so much for what you can do for God or to learn from God, but you come to church, maybe, to gain. I'll come to church because I'll meet somebody. I'll come to church because I'm, I'm in a position of influence and I have power and people look up to me. I'll come to church and give because I need a tax credit. Whatever the case may be, I'll manipulate people or I'm going to find someone there, whatever. They make me feel good about myself and I have an audience there. Whatever the case may be, maybe you come to church for motives other than worship and maybe you're even taking advantage of people that are in the family of God who are here right now, maybe. How does God feel about that? Well, Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So what did Jesus do when he found such a situation? When he came to the temple and saw that people were being ripped off, that poor people were taken advantage of who didn't have the money to buy offerings, 
that the religious leaders whose whole job was to glorify God, to point people to God and to teach about how the fact God loves them and he wants to save them, they were using the situation for their own game. How did Jesus feel? He was righteously furious at what he saw there because he will not allow, remember, you have turned my house into a den of thieves. And he flipped over tables. He, it's one of my favorite things to think about. Like when he saw what was happening, it says he went and made a whip, which meant he had time to change his mind. You ever think about that? It wasn't just a fly off the handle thing. He was like, I need a whip. Well, I guess I'll make one. <laughs> went over, took time to build a whip and was like, that's what I'm looking for. All right. Because <laughs> he was serious about his people. And about his church. So when we see Jesus, we get to see what God looks like. That's, a, that's the beauty of the Gospels. Always be reading Gospels. Whatever you're reading somewhere else, go back to the Gospels over and over and over. Because it's so easy to get into some of those difficult writings in different places in the Old Testament. And forget the grace and goodness of God. Not just in Jesus, but in God towards you. Amen, church? So God loves you. God loves you. Man, I didn't even get to the whole, it's better to tie a, a rock around someone's neck and chuck them into the water than to offend one of these little ones. God is serious about his people, amen? Now, here's the thing though. If Jesus is this image of God, he's this, this manifest representation on earth that we can see, that we can read about so we can learn who God is. That's who Jesus is according to this text. But Paul does not want you to get reductionistic with that and for a moment think that that's all he is. He's not just some ambassador that God was like, they need to know who I am and I'm spirit, so I'm gonna give them this image so that they can see it. He's not an actor playing a part. He's much more. So look where Paul goes next. He says, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. And then he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, some have taken this to mean that Jesus was created by God. He was the first of all the other things that were created. This is just simply not true. It does not hold up in comparison to other scripture. We don't have time to go into too much of it, but the idea here is that Jesus even established himself as being before all of creation, even himself. So for example, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, say it with me, I am. Now, anyone who knows their Old Testament knows he's referring when he says that to what God himself said to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. So it is a statement that he is not, it's not like he was created by God, he is God, okay? So don't take this firstborn of creation into some sort of like, Jesus was created first, then some angels, then the earth, then Adam, like that's not what this means. It's more of a statement of order um, um, in terms of position not chronological. So another way of maybe translating that, that that might be more helpful is this. He's the firstborn over all creation. So if, if you have studied your Old Testament, you guys know probably pretty well, um, throughout ancient history, not just in the Bible, but throughout ancient history, the firstborn in a family carried incredible prestige, privilege, responsibility, and dominion. The firstborn in any family, he was the person who would inherit the, the father's um, kingdom. He was the one who would inherit the wealth. He would inherit the property. He would continue the family lineage. He was the person who in, inhabited all of the, the authority, the dominion, you might say, for that father's kingdom moving forward. The firstborn is the person who always did this. So when the scriptures here, when Paul specifically is saying that he's the firstborn, he's talking about his preeminence. This is a statement of supremacy, of ownership, and preeminence. He's not just some ambassador that comes and represents God. He is over all things. He is God in the flesh. It's stating clearly, Jesus is Lord. And this is where it starts breaking down for all sorts of people. Because let's just be honest. We love the picture of Jesus at the well. We love the story where she's caught in adultery, the other woman, and brought before him. We love the idea that Jesus is this loving, compassionate God who will bend his knee to serve those who are in difficulty. We love that, don't we? You know what we don't love so much? Bending our own knee. We love that Jesus is Savior, but we struggle with Jesus as Lord. 
We love that he's here for us when we need. We love that he's got grace, but we struggle with the idea that he is above all things, before all things. He is king. Anyone bowing before us moves our heart, doesn't it? But it's a whole lot harder to set our own emotions and desires aside and bow our hearts before others. But Paul gives you no wiggle room on this. None of the scriptures do. In fact, Paul pushes deep into this idea. Look what he says in verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he says here, not only is Jesus not a created one in the sense that firstborn of creation where some people want to take it, he says, no, no, no. He is the agent by which all things are created. And in that sense, he has creator's rights and dominion and authority over everything. Look how this hymn, this poem lays this out. Everything in heaven, Jesus created. Everything that is on earth, Jesus created. Everything that is visible to us, Jesus created. Everything that is invisible to us, Jesus created. He uses this language next. It's very familiar to you if you read Ephesians, for example, and you study spiritual warfare. He says, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. There is no authority anywhere that is not just under Jesus, but it was created and given in Jesus. Now, we have a hard time with that because we are Americans. And our country was based on what? Rebellion. It's okay. Everybody say amen. It's, it's true, right? You go, well, it was rebellion against oppression. I know, but it was still rebellion. It was, we are not going to let them tell us what to do anymore. That's really what it comes down to. And in the Pacific Northwest, big time. Because I don't know if you guys know how we, so I know I'm from the South. I, I'm not the we, whatever. But how we got here, it was people after the Civil War, Jim Crow law changes, slavery's outlawed, all those kind of things. People from the southern states who were tired of all the rule changes, did not want to live under the new authority, packed up and moved here. Brought their slaves with them to make them establish the land here and then said, you get to live here for one year, but then you got to get out. That's why the Northwest is the way it is. And so we in the Pacific Northwest are very much, we'll find our own way. We'll choose our own way. Don't tell me what to do. We're going to live free. We're the Pacific Northwest. We build fences on our land. We have guns. California says, don't tread on me, but we mean it. Right? That's who we are. But we get authority. We might rebel against it, but we either crave it or when there's significant authority nearby, it, it does spark some sort of awe, reverence, or understanding. Now, I remember when George W. Bush was president, he actually came here to Medford. I think it was campaigning for his reelection campaign. At that time, this is not an election thing, please. No emails, no nothing. I don't care. At that particular time, I wasn't super impressed with George W. Bush. And I loved the Will Ferrell skits about him, which only made you like him less because they just made fun of him so much. And so it's not like I hated him or anything. I just thought, is this the best we got, really? That's kind of just where I was. And he had his all shucks, y'all, which wasn't helping, let's face it. I lost my southern accent for a reason. But he came here, and I was on staff at Applegate Christian Fellowship up in Roosh at the time, and Peter John Corson was the pastor at the time, and Peter John was selected to do this opening prayer at the speech that he was going to be at. And so that day, Pete pulled me aside and said, Jeff, I need you to do me a favor. No one's yet told me where I need to go, what I'm supposed to do. I need you to run down to the fairgrounds where that's going to be. Try to figure that out and give me a call. All right, Pete, I'm on it. So I went down there. Had no idea I was going to do that that day. I've got my backpack with me and my Bible and stuff in there, but I'm not even thinking about anything. And the next thing I know, I end up getting bypass or bypassing this whole massive long line of people. Some of you were there and saw me skipping y'all. Went all the way to the front of the line. I get brought into this one door where secret service was and they start like going through all my stuff. And I'm thinking like, I wasn't expecting this. I had a knife in my bag, <laughs> like one of those multi-tool pocket knife things. They're pulling out like, you don't own this anymore. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And they end up ushering me through this thing and they go out to the other side of the building and they put me literally on the front row directly in front of the podium where the president of the United States is about to speak. And that's not why I was there. I was just supposed to get information and call back. But I called Pete like, yeah, I'm not going to be back to the office. 
I'm just going to hang out here. So I, I, here I am. The, the president comes out. I get to meet him. I get to shake his hand, all this kind of stuff. And here's the thing. I wasn't a big fan. I, I wasn't super impressed by some of the policies or leadership or whatever of the president at that time. But I'll tell you what. When he came out, I felt a little different. And, and I don't even mean in approval. I'm just saying, this is the president of the United States. This is the most powerful man in the world. And there was something about, almost like his aura, or whatever you want to call it, when he came in, even shaking his hand, like you could feel there was something really important. There was like this mantle on him that you could tangibly feel in that environment. And here's the thing. Most powerful man in the world. And that's a joke compared to who Jesus Christ is. Like that's a joke Like he looks at that stuff and he looks at our obsession with leaders and he implements those leadership structures and he tells us to honor our leaders. So don't go too far with this. But to him, that's like, y'all are cute. (laughs) I've said y'all twice in this sermon, haven't I? (laughs) This is just the reality of it. We were made to be ruled. We may not like it, But that says more about our sinful rebellion than it does the reality of what we were created to do. We are, you, every one of you, whether you like what I'm saying right now, Christian or not, you are currently under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't think so until we become a Christian. We think that, well, we're under our own rule, but I'll become Christian, and now I've put myself under God's rule. That's cute. You did not put yourself under God's rule. He never stopped ruling. Do you understand? He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. There is no power that you have ever seen or experienced that comes close to the power that is Jesus Christ. And one day, like it or not, everyone will bend their knee before that king. Everyone. Everyone will bow before that king. And the fact that maybe we aren't in submission to Jesus Maybe, let me say this differently. For those who don't live in submission to Jesus Christ, if you're like, I'm not under his authority, the fact that you haven't experienced judgment yet for that rebellion is just testimony to his grace. But I I warn you, it's coming. He's king, he rules, and he reigns, no matter what. And the fact that, that you haven't experienced that judgment is testimony to the fact that he's wooing you to him because he's not just king, but he's good. And he loves you desperately. Amen? And because of that, and because of what we see here in this text, here's what I can say about every single person in this room, whether I know you or not. Every one of you are uniquely wired. You are uniquely designed. And you are uniquely placed where you are in life to reflect the glory of God to everyone around you. That's what you were designed. You were designed to live for the renown of this king. That's the design. And maybe some of the angst you might experience in your life or the frustration or the fears or whatever the case, maybe some of that is because you're choosing not to live according to God's design for you. And so there's unrest and there's frustration and there's difficulty It's not what you're designed for. You are designed to live for the fame and renown of Jesus Christ. And some of you would go, that's so incredibly egotistical of God. Why would he do that? Why in the world would God create me to live for his fame? That seems so selfish. I thought he's giving and humble and loving and all these things. That seems so incredibly selfish but you're stopping way too short in the story. You haven't, you haven't heard, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. So here's what I'm gonna do in the last few minutes that I have with you guys. I'm gonna take a step back out of Colossians. And I want you to understand how significant what we're looking at is and the role that you actually play in this. And I think that if you understand this, I think Paul would say, if you get this, if this can capture your imagination and capture your heart, you won't be so tempted to go back to some of those old neighborhoods. Why would you bow before any other God when you realize who this one is? His majesty and his power and yet what he's done on your behalf. So I want you to start right here. This text tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you know that he's not the only one? 
who was created to be the image of the invisible God. I want you to look with me. We have the text here, but look at Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1 verse 26, it says this. And then God said, let us, you see the, the Trinity speaking together with one another. Let us make man in our image. After our, what's that word? Likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. The text tells us here that mankind was created with a specific purpose in the image of God. The, the, the words are the imago Dei. That's what it gets referred to, image of God. Mankind is created in the image of God. In other words, there's something about man that looks like God. And so theologians have fought for a really, really long time. What does that really mean? And they, they argue over certain points. They'll say things like, well, um, man is a moral entity. We have the ability to understand morality and make choices that, that we can live beyond just raw animal nature. And so that's like God because God is a, a moral being. And, and maybe that's it. Others would say, well, we're capable of deeper, complex relationships and communication in ways that other animals aren't. We're created for fellowship and relationship with God. And so that's part of it. And maybe that's it. There's all sorts of different things that, that maybe even in our ability to multiply in that sense that there's this picture of bringing life. There's all sorts of things. We can understand that there is a God. We can be cognizant of God. We can speak about God. But I don't think the idea is that there's supposed to be some tangible list. I think if we needed a list, I think God would have given us a list. Amen? I don't think that's it. I think the overall point is what he's trying to say. Hey, you were created to look like God. You were created to be some sort of physical manifestation of who God is to the world around you. That is how we were designed. That's our purpose. Isaiah 43, 7 says this. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He says, hey, look, I created you, why? For my glory. Now think about it for just a second. What does that mean? That's church language. Sometimes when you see church language, you should stop and ask yourself, do I actually know what that church language means or have I just heard it so long it's familiar but still actually means nothing to me? What does it mean to glorify God? Some of you go, I, well, I don't know, like we sing songs to him, therefore we glorify him. We tell stories that make him look good or whatever the case may be. No, it's so much more than that. This understanding of glorifying God goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses had this really unique relationship with God. He could be in the presence of God in a way no one else was allowed to do. And so they spend some season kind of going back and forth. You guys know the story. And, and at a certain point, Moses makes a request of God. And he says to God, Lord, show me your glory. Remember, no man has seen God, but Moses puts in this special request. Show me your glory. And God responds to him. Maybe you, maybe you remember. He says, hey, no, no man can see me and live. My holiness, it, it would consume you. you. It can't happen, but I'll make a deal with you, Moses. I'm going to put you in this little cleft, this little crevice in the rock. I'm going to cover you up, and I'm going to pass by. And it's almost like the afterglow of my glory when it goes by. That you might be able to handle. It's probably going to cause you to be a little bit nuclear in your skin later, but you might be able to handle that. And so he puts Moses in that place, he covers him up, and he comes by. Now, I want you to look at this text and think about it. He's talking about what is your glory, and what is it that God shows him in response to the question, show me your glory. It says in Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Think about that a second. God, show me your glory. God responds, and what is it he gives him? A declaration of who he is, or you might say, what he's like. 
he tells Moses this declaration of his name. And names in that time, remember, they involved character. It was who you are. It wasn't just a random name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord. And then he, he's describing himself to Moses. He's telling Moses what he's like. He passed before, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love. This is how God displayed his glory. So when we say, and according to whether it be Colossians or Isaiah or throughout, when the Bible speaks that man was created in the image of God to reflect God's glory, what he means is we are designed to kind of look like God. We're designed to be gracious, we're designed to be slow to anger. We're designed to be merciful. We're designed to keep steadfast love for thousands. We're designed to be slow to anger, to abound in love, to be faithful. This is what it means to glorify God. Glorifying God means you are bringing a physical manifestation of the character and nature of God. That's what we were designed to do. The problem is we rebelled against God and we fell. So I want you to take this one step forward and think about what happened. Look at Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But look, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like, come on out, out loud. You will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. This is different. When Satan comes to her, he's saying, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. He does not mean you will reflect what God looks like to the world around. He's going back to order and preeminence. He's saying, you don't have to be under him anymore. You can be like God, not under the umbrella. You can be your own God. You can know what's good and evil. You can decide what's best for you. You can decide what you want and what you don't want. And you don't have to live for his glory anymore. You can live for your own. And in that moment, the Imago Dei that all humanity was created with, that we were designed to reflect the glory of God in that moment, it fell and it was tainted. Now, the Imago Dei is still there. Later, Moses, God's going to say to Moses, hey, if someone kills someone else, they're going to have to pay for that with their own life. Why? Because that person was created in my image. So it's still there, but it's tainted. We, we don't look as much like God as we were supposed to. I mean, we're not typically slow to anger by nature. Think of your children when they're born. Are they slow to wrath? I'm hungry. Ah! Like instantly, right? It's not slow at all. Are we naturally merciful? If someone sins against us, are we quick to forgive their iniquity? You go, no, but I'm jumping to that second part that he talked about where I will by no means clear the guilty. <laughs> yeah, but you're doing that from a prideful heart that wants to get vengeance for the fact that your pride was wounded. You are not acting out of, I want to save them and I'm just, no, you're mad. That's what you are. And, and just bottom line, we're dying. We don't look a whole lot God, a whole lot like God as we are dying and God is life. So something in that Imago Dei was tainted. We fell. We were designed by God for his glory and we blew it. So what do we do now? And this is the beauty of it. This is the beautiful part. What's God's reaction to the fall? I had this plan. I'm going to have Jeff live to display my glory. And then Jeff blew it and blew it again and blew it again and blew it again. Look at Israel. He says to Israel in Genesis, I'm going to display myself through you to the world. All nations will be blessed through you. They'll all know that I am God through you. And what's the story of Israel? How faithful were they? I mean, they couldn't walk two steps without tripping over their own pride and sinfulness. So what's God's reaction to that? All right, Jeff, game over. Let's wipe the marker board clean and start with something new. You know what, humans, 
I tried, man, I tried. I really tried. I gave you guys the whole thing, man, but you fell for this lie and you bought into your own pride and it just didn't work. So I will just wipe all of this off and now I'm gonna start with dogs. Dogs are faithful. It's God spelled backwards. It just fits. I'm gonna move with dogs and now dogs will display my glory to the world around us. Cats are evil. Anyway, (laughs) Is, is that what God does? No, think about this. Not only is God so insanely patient, he he doesn't just give us other chances. Look what he said in Genesis 3. Do we have a slide for this? I think I skipped it last service. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then look, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. God's response to our failure to reflect his glory is not just patience, He sent the one that is the most preeminent over everyone to come do it for us. Like, do you imagine that? He didn't just say, all right, try again. And he didn't say, though he could have, I'm done with the whole plan. You're out of here. Forget it. He said instead, Jesus. And Jesus said, I got this. And Christ set all of that supremacy, all of that authority all of that power, all of that position, all of that stuff aside and became a baby, learned to walk, all of those things. Imagine the power. Imagine that position and the humility it would take to set that authority aside and humble yourself under those that are wronging you, that are in active rebellion against you and then die for them? Does that grab your heart at all? When you understand the majesty, who he is, and then what he came? And then here's the thing, listen to this. Those that go, I can't believe God wants everybody to live for his glory. That's so selfish. They don't understand what Jesus did to save those of us that blew it. Because it's the exact opposite. of It's the most gracious act in the history of the world or the universe. And so Jesus, we always talk about the cross and we make much of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as we should. Amen? But look, the life of Christ was not him just biding time until he got crucified. In his life, he perfectly glorified God the way we were supposed to. Look what it says in John 17, as Jesus is right about to go to the cross. He's almost, he's just about to die. And look at his dying prayer. When Jesus had spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Do you see the language? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifest your name to the people who you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Do you see how that language suddenly just glows when you understand the reality of who Jesus is, what it means to glorify God, and what he did on our behalf? Never underestimate or never downplay the life of Christ. Without it, we're still toast. We would never have the righteousness to achieve heaven. So, so Jesus not only is patient towards us for the fact that we blew it in our job to radiate or to glorify God. He dies on the cross from our sin. He raises into heaven, defeats the curse for us that we might have eternal life. But he does even much more. 
He says, okay, you put your faith in me. Now you're part of the kingdom of God. But then what does he do? Remember the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity? Remember him? What's he do with him? The Bible tells us that then he takes his Holy Spirit and puts it in us. Why? So we can speak in tongues and freak people out. Right? No. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So now he puts his spirit in you and starts repairing that broken down image of God that we blew in, the, in our sin. He starts bringing godly character into our lives. It's a work of his own spirit that he does this. So he's not only patient, he not only comes and lives for us, he not only comes and dies for us, then he puts his spirit in us so that he can restore the image that we blew. Look what Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are the characteristics of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is to bring those things to bear in your character. Why? Because you are glorifying God now in your life. You become the visible manifestation of the invisible God in the way that we were originally designed to. All of which made possible by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the work done by God. It's Christ's life through us then. That's amazing. Totally should have got an amen. Don't do it now. Too late. But totally should have. And then look, Colossians 3.10. Paul's going to go on to Colossians. I don't want to give it away. We're done here, but look. Colossians 3.10. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after what? The image of its creator. Church, you were designed to look like God. In our rebellion against God, we blew it, but Jesus came, glorified God perfectly, the visible image of the invisible God died for our sins that to pay the price for our sin and grant us forgiveness but now if you're a believer in christ he, he puts his spirit in you and begins to work and change and rub off all those raw spots and bring forth the fruit of the very character of god the fruit of the spirit in our lives so that we can now by the power of the spirit of god and not our own effort glorify god like we were designed to do that means this what's god's will for my life look like jesus be like God. And I don't mean, I will be like God. I mean, like, I, I want to be like God. I want to be gracious like God. I want to be patient like God. I want to be loving like God. But I'm not in my nature. I'm struggling here. But praise God that Jesus came. Praise God that he's given his spirit. So rather than, I'm going to do this, I'm going to turn to the spirit of God and say, will you have your way with me, Lord? Holy Spirit, will you fill me anew? Will you, will you continue to change me into your character? Will you continue to convict me of sin and help me to walk by your power in truth? Now remember, why does Paul do all this? Why do we spend time talking about this? Because it's one thing for me to say, hey, go obey God with your life. Be good for goodness sake. Christmas, right? It's another thing to say, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he did for you in spite of you? Do you know how powerful he is and yet how he set that all aside to go clean up our mess? To go do the thing that we couldn't do on our behalf? Do you know that now he wants to put his spirit in you so that you can do these things? Do you understand the majesty of God and the love and grace of God? If you understand those two things, the obedience thing is going to come naturally because the fruit of the spirit will be evident in your life. It'll just grow. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we uphold Jesus for who he is, we're way less likely to go back to those old neighborhoods. Amen? We're going to take just a few minutes to do just that. We don't want church to always be just some place where I come talk and then you guys just go home and go on about your day. I mean, the idea is hopefully that I'm somehow glorifying God in displaying his grace and goodness to you here. But, but he wants to talk to you. That same God who is preeminent over all things wants to talk to you. So here's what you're going to do. I'm going to take just a few minutes and just go to the Lord. Like just bask in the goodness of the grace of God. 
ponder his majesty in comparison to our weakness and his greatness. He holds all things on earth together, everything. We can't even hold our own lives together. He holds everything together. And yet he cares about each individual one of us. He loves you. God loves you. And then may our response to an understanding of the glory and majesty of God be the same as Moses, that we might worship him. So ponder, pray, talk to God, and then sing with reckless abandon, declaring the glory, the majesty, the character and grace of God. Lord, we commit this time to you and pray, God, that you would be glorified in our time, that your spirit would move in this place and empower, Lord, change, empower song, awaken affection. May you be upheld. May you be lifted up. May you be glorified, Jesus. In Jesus' name.